14 minutes we have left here in segment three. I want to point out for the final time that chats with people like Joe Rubin are why this station depends upon your support. Please go to fundraiser.kdvs.org and make a pledge. On a lighter yet bittersweet note, we note here in the obituary section of the program the passing of Louie Louie singer Jack Ely. Locating the Kingsman version of that song. It's been covered, I think, 1,700 times. And if it wasn't musically etched enough into America's consciousness, there's, of course, always that immortal scene from Animal House. To quote briefly from the obituary regarding Mr. Ely, when he stood in his toes, leaned his head back, and began to incoherently shout Louie Louie into a microphone 52 years ago, Jack Ely had no idea he was creating a rock and roll classic. Or, for that matter, to the lead singer of The Kingsman, No, he was laying the groundwork for the first federal investigation into dirty song lyrics, while simultaneously creating a tune so memorable that everybody from the Beach Boys to Nirvana would later record it. And the backstory of the song is that when they set up to record it, the sound engineer raised the studio's only microphone several feet above his head. Ely was placed in the middle of his fellow musicians to create a better live feel for the recording. The result was he had to stand on his toes, lean his head back, and shout as loudly as he could just to be heard over the drums and guitar. The end result, about the only two words anyone could clearly understand, were contained in the song's first two lines. Louie, 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 oh no, we gotta go. But the driving three-chord instrumental progression was maddeningly memorable, as were the song's opening lines delivered with just the right amount of rebellious, if slurry, snarl. Didn't hurt either that people were unable to understand what Ely was saying began to claim they were hearing lewd words about the girl the singer was going to meet up with. Radio stations began to ban Louie Louie, and the FBI launched an investigation, eventually determining the song was, quote, unintelligible at any speed, unquote. Jack Ely evidently got quite a kick out of that. And while as far as Radio Parallax knows, no Kalahari Bushman ever recorded a cover of Louie Louie, been some recently published data about a study done on these hunter-gatherers back in the 1970s before they had any electric lights. And in chronicling the things they talked about during the 24-hour day, it turned out that, well, there were differences between daylight conversation and evening conversation. Turns out the day's talk is dominated by economic matters and comments about fellow tribesmen. The night talk is dominated by storytelling. The theory here is that as The Bushmen gather around the evening fire to cook food. They have an opportunity to swap stories. And it's thought that this storytelling may be as functional in its own way as the speaking as as the daytime speak. Stories help people learn useful information about how to handle situations they have not themselves experienced. Interesting idea. In addition to help making food more digestible, perhaps fire gave us the entertainment industry. And in going from the low-tech world of gathering data directly from observations of people to 
MRI scans. We have this news. Gregory Quachuk at the University of Alberta, Canada, stuck volunteers' hands inside an MRI and slowly pulled on their finger joints until they emitted the familiar pop of a knuckle. People have wondered for years, what the hell is going on inside a joint when we crack our knuckles? It's long been thought that an air bubble forms inside the joint with a lack of pressure and that uh, this may be the cause, but these scans showed us that the air cavity that formed in the fluid around the joint persisted after the noise. They also observed a mysterious flash seen just before the crack. So what's the punchline to all this? We still don't know why your knuckles crack. New Scientist magazine suggested that higher resolution MRIs might shed more light on this. Mr. McMillan suggests there may be an ignoble award in this for someone. And speaking of high-tech medical studies with ambivalent results, and how's that for a segue? We have a lot of women and doctors currently in a state of confusion in, in California and, and other states. Thanks to a law that suggests that women need to be notified when their mammograms reveal that they have dense breasts. Having denser breasts makes these examinations harder to read, which led 21 states, including California, to pass laws requiring health facilities to notify women when they have dense breasts. The problem is the women don't know what to do with the information, and apparently neither do their doctors. Critics are saying the laws cause women unnecessary anxiety and can lead to higher costs and treatment that don't necessarily save lives or otherwise benefit the patient. Turns out in some states, though not including California, the laws go further and require health providers to offer a supplemental screening like an ultrasound to women with dense breasts, even if their mammograms are clean. The problem is that no medical consensus exists on whether routine supplemental screening for women with dense breasts is, in fact, worthwhile. The whole question of health screening for different types of cancers is undergoing a revolution in America. For the longest time, women have been advised to start yearly mammograms at about age 40, but in 2009, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force issued a controversial recommendation that most women without a family history of breast cancer or other risk factors should wait until age 50. We will continue to follow these controversies. And speaking of biological controversies and the Ig Nobel Awards, we're happy to have some follow-up today on our <laughs> ongoing story about the visual pigments of the mantis shrimp. And speaking with UCD ophthalmologist Ivan Schwab, himself an Ig Nobel laureate recipient for his work on why woodpeckers don't get headaches, also wrote a tremendous book, Evolution's Witness, explaining how, well, all the different types of eyes that are found in the animal world. Great piece in the April 18th edition of New Scientist talking about color vision. Goes into all these pigments that various species have in their eyes. It turns out that we primates only have three, or basically two and a half. Whereas, as mentioned on this program several weeks ago, dragonflies apparently have like three dozen as far as I can tell, the previous record holder had been the mantis shrimp that has at least a dozen, somewhere between a dozen and 18 different pigments in its visual apparatus, which makes you wonder what kind of color vision these creatures must have. Do they live in an amazingly technicolor world? Well, down in Australia, apparently Justin Marshall at the University of Queensland in Brisbane experimented with the mantis shrimp to see how good their color discrimination was. And it turns out, that mantis shrimps trained to respond to colors using food rewards stopped being able to distinguish between colors much earlier than we humans. 
When there is more breaking news regarding the color perception of mantis shrimps, Radio Parallax will be on it. Now, in other areas of weird science, we should talk about forensic evidence. There's currently a big stink, as we talked about at the top of the show, over hair analysis done at the FBI. Apparently, they overstated uh, wildly how definitive they could be about whether a hair came from this individual or that. We asked some months ago for some follow-up from you, dear listener, because we're sure that some of you know something about fingerprints and forensic evidence. There seems to be some pretty good evidence that uh, fingerprints, although uh, you know they obviously have some value in identifying people, have never been subjected to the rigorous scientific scrutiny that's necessary to work out how often a bogus match might be likely to come up. And apparently there's a lack of motivation to do so out of fear that a lot of convictions might be thrown out while they decide just exactly how accurate the fingerprint evidence was. This is another story that we are far from the bottom of and will continue to probe. Something else in that category is continuing to take a look at what the Deepwater Horizon oil rig accident did five years ago. It was the world's worst oil spill because of the fact that when you're drilling a mile down on the seafloor and things go wrong, you can't send anybody down to fix it. There's evidently a new documentary out titled The Great Invisible from a Margaret Brown that looks into uh, what really happened down there. As we laughingly reported on this program, not long afterwards, oil companies were saying, well, looks like oil's all gone. Boy, that bacteria must have broke that stuff down a lot faster than we expected. Gosh, it was just there a minute ago. That, of course, was a bunch of BS. Speaking of BS, we had to like the uh, comments that were made in the wake of this scandal involving New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez. He was indicted a few weeks back by the U.S. Justice Department for trading favors with a rich donor. Taking a look at this, the New York Times noted that this tawdry scandal is the first significant campaign corruption case evolving out of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. The paper noted that the central plank of that controversial 2010 ruling, which allows unlimited individual donations to supposedly independent campaign groups, was that, in the words of Justice Anthony Kennedy, large political donations, quote, do not give rise to quid pro quo corruption, unquote. Yes, Justice Anthony Kennedy, a product of McGeorge School of Law. Kennedy believes that large political donations do not give rise to quid pro quo corruption. Sure, we're going to go with that, along with the fact that the state's doubling the number of water police it's sending around to tell you you're watering your lawn on the wrong day. Meanwhile, subsidized water to alfalfa farmers is wasting, and we do mean wasting, about 6% of our entire state water supply. But we're sure the political contributions of agricultural interests have nothing to do with why they're currently being protected. All right, in the one minute we have left, I want to cite a piece from the San Jose Mercury News looking back at 1965 and asking the question of whether it was rock and roll's best year ever. Yeah, pretty good tunes. The Supremes' Stop in the Name of Love, Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour, Rolling Stone's I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, and my personal favorite, James Brown's Papa's got a brand new bag. Was a hell of a year, but also raises the question of how it is great tunes become great tunes. And of course, as in so many things, it comes down to marketing. 
The Mercury had an additional piece about a new documentary titled Lambert and Stamp about the two geniuses that turned a band called The High Numbers into the group we know today as The Who. I hope we can have some conversations about this kind of stuff with some of the enormous talent that exists here at KDVS in the music departments. We got DJs here that are forgotten more than I've ever known. So, Mr. Mill, let's see if we can't chat with a few of them, eh? Sorry to say we are out of time. Again, our thanks to investigative journalist Joe Rubin. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And if you still haven't done your part to help KDVS, please now go to fundraiser.kdvs.org and make a pledge.